have been thinking without knowing it all throughout this book of how bad my poems are. But it wasn't a feeling of like despair. It was just a feeling of there's just such a better way, but it felt good and it felt like something's different. I think that the more poetry that you read, the better that you become at writing it. Hello, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Alex and Becky about the poems of Zbigniew Herbert. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional writing prompt that will hopefully help you make history a little bit more personal. The quote I'd like to start with today relates to Zbigniew Herbert's very frequent use of historical or mythological characters or events or settings in his poems. He once wrote, I do not turn to history to draw from it an easy lesson of hope, but to confront my experience with that of others, to acquire something I might call universal compassion, and also a sense of responsibility, responsibility for the state of my conscience. I think writing about historical characters or mythological events can sometimes risk alienating readers who, don't, who aren't familiar with those facts, who have never read those stories. But I love Zbigniew Herbert's ability to write a universally accessible poem that is based on myth or history. And I think that's because he tells us here that he wants to, the lesson that he wants to draw from history is not one of easy hope, but of universal compassion. He wants to continuously remind himself and us, the people of the past were just like us and deserve empathy and understanding and charity and compassion and grieved and hoped and lived and suffered just like we do. And I also love that he points out that the lesson of responsibility that he learns from history isn't a responsibility to preach a moral lesson to his readers or to necessarily change the world in any concrete way, but he says he learns that he has a responsibility for the state of his own conscience. So I think confronting history, knowing full well that we, are, we can be and are guilty of the same mistakes committed by those about whom we read, is the most moral way to approach the past and consequently the present. And for more examples about Zbigniew Herbert's poems of history and myth, and also many other aspects of his work, let's turn to that conversation between me and Alex and Becky. Uh, hi, how are you guys? Good. Good. How are you? Doing well. I want to start, Maybe okay, so maybe the best way to start, I think this is the best way to approach any book. And because it's, this is the best way to approach any book because we need to be reminded that books are for pleasure. I mean, it's an easy thing to answer, I think. And also because it'll get the ball rolling. But what are your favorite poems in this book? I know it's very hard. I, know, I said it was an easy question, but it's actually kind of hard. If you had to pick one poem to convince somebody to read more by Zbigniew Herbert, which poem would you have this person read? That's a good question. I think that that actually makes it easier to answer. We mean like the convincing someone else to read more part? Yes, because I might pick one poem that, that I'm particularly attached to if I was asked to pick my favorite, but I might also pick a different one if I know that whoever's going to be reading this is not experienced with poetry. But I think the poem that I would pick in that case would be Shell. I know Becky likes this one too, so we should absolutely read it. What page is it on? 
It is on 131. I wrote, I wrote all the page numbers down so I can remember. That's helpful. This book, I love this book. And I have to say, it has one of the most beautiful book covers I've ever seen in my entire life. Yes. But why doesn't it have a table of contents with all of the titles of the poems at the beginning? It's quite annoying. So it's good that you're taking keeping track of page numbers. So Shell, 131. Do you guys want to read it? Which of you would like to read this poem? Go ahead, Alex. Okay. <laughs> In front of the mirror in my parents' bedroom, there lay a pink shell. I stole up to it on tiptoe and in a swift motion raised it to my ear. I wanted to catch it when it wasn't pining with its monotonous sound. Though I was little, I knew that even if you love someone very much, it sometimes happens that you forget all about it. Okay, so enthuse, please, about this poem. What stands out about it to you guys? I... I love that it can be so familiar and so unexpected at the same time. That is amazing. <laughs> he picks, he chooses to write about something childlike that all of us probably remember, if not doing, at least doing something similar to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that familiarity, I don't know, it's just, it's unexpected because I, don't, I think, oh, I can write about that or somebody can write about that. And yeah. uh, it surprised me, even though it's so familiar. And I love that. It suddenly opens up a whole, it's suddenly, it's the kind of poem that convinces you correctly that you will never run out of material for writing poems. And it's a, that's a kind of exuberant epiphany. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you can ride that high for a long time. I'll never run out of material for poems. Like writer's block might permanently go away. I'll just write about the stuff on my parents' dresser. <laughs> Nothing is off limits. Becky, does this poem stand out for you for similar reasons, different reasons? Uh, I love what you said, Alex, but my, it stood out for me for just a little bit different reasons if you want to move on to that. But I love what you said because it's so true. There's just anything in the world available to us as poets. And yeah. And we can do it so badly if we're not careful, but there is a lot out there. I mean, there's everything out there. And that's, yeah. that's a really good example of what this poem can do that I hadn't really thought of. So, But I did love this poem. It was one of my favorites too. And I think the reason I loved it so much is I thought, yes, that happens to us every day, right? We, we pick things in our lives that we focus on or we, you know, things that we have to do. Um, and and we're not thinking about how, oh, I'm so in love with my husband, or I'm so in love with these beautiful children, but it's always there, but you can forget totally about it. And yeah. it's okay. Like I felt when I read that poem that it's absolutely okay and actually very necessary for us to forget about those things on a daily basis as we go about our lives and see, and even see the beauty, like when I'm thinking about maybe teaching my students and like connecting with them, I don't need to be you know, thinking about my family and God and all of these things all at once, I can focus on what matters in that moment and find the beauty in it. And I just thought that's absolutely like a truth, like that you tack up on your wall. That is true. Mm -hmm. That happens right. in our lives. And it's important that it is that way. This is great. It, you know, it's, you don't have to be you're not revealing that you don't actually love your husband if you admit that you're not thinking about him every second of the day. <laughs> and Part that's of a healthy... ridiculous anyway, right? Yeah, that's right. Like, that's right. Oh, I love how you pointed that out, you know? That, yeah. That it, I, is impos it is possible and not just possible, but like... 
yeah, it's really necessary. However, I think this poem also, there is such a thing as too much forgetting, you know, so some distance is good, but then it's like we need intermittent need to be constant we need to like come back frequently occasionally and be reminded of what we love people objects places you know so distance and then come back more distance and then come back yeah and i almost wondered if there was a little bit of guilt in that phrase too um oh i forgot that i love my parents or whatever you know i don't yeah. know if that alex or michael but i was like oh yeah we have to go back to the things that matter yeah it could be right either way and maybe there is no right way or whatever but well, can we talk a little bit about how this poem could go wrong? Because we're we're describing why we love this poem and the way that it, I mean, I think this is what poetry is for. Poetry divorced from l- l- your life, you know, isn't really great poetry. Poetry should I- inform the way that you live and the way that you see the world. However, it does matter the words that the poet chooses to put on the page because the choices that the poet makes in the phrasing, the syntax, the cadence, the punctuation affect how you experience the poem. So one of you said, maybe it was Alex, that this could have gone so badly. This topic risks sentimentality, risks triteness, risks, you know, that kind of sickly version of nostalgia. It risks also making a kind of moral lesson, like in the moral of the story is. Mm -hmm. What is it about his phrasing or his structure or his sentences or anything that rescues or avoids all of those pitfalls? I think that one of the reasons that he's successful here is partially because he chooses to write the abstract part, particularly, in childlike language. Okay. But instead of him looking back on it nostalgically, he's writing it from his perspective when he was there as a child. And uh-huh. I, it, it takes away that danger of becoming sentimental and nostalgic yeah the so the phrase i knew that even if you love someone very much it sometimes happens that you forget all about it yes it's it doesn't sound like the language of a philosopher or a theologian or a marriage counselor you know what i mean it is the kind of i mean it's it's grand human wisdom but it's it's phrased in the language as you say of a child and so he's keeping the context and the language surprisingly childlike. I love that. I think that's all there is to say about it. In one of his poems, he says that at the end. I think that's all there is to say about this. (laughs) And I love that because it's like, yeah, you probably can't say any more, but it's just so direct. Well, Becky, you wrote in your notes something like, didn't you? Somebody did. You wrote that he knows when he said enough. Yeah. And what did you mean? I kind of said he's good at like things stop sometimes suddenly. And just, I just listed some examples. So he doesn't need to go into detail about everything. Uh huh. It depends on what the occasion calls for. Is that, is that the part you were? He withholds descriptions. Yeah, that's right. He withholds descriptions that won't get us anywhere. He knows how to read his audience very well. Yeah. What do you mean, Alex? I think that I've just noticed as I've been reading his work that he he does, as you're saying, Becky, stop before he said too much. But I think he also knows how to approach a different topic depending on how he imagines his audience will respond to that topic. He, he can recognize um, what problems could come up in a poem 
that could make an audience turn away. And he, uh-huh. he avoids those things. I, I was noticing, like, particularly with a lot of his um, prose poems, <laughs> but also with his, his other poems, he, he uses satire to avoid some of those things as well. And he's very, very good at it. He's almost like a, a little bit detached from his subject in order to avoid being too, cement, too sentimental with things. Yeah. I want to talk more about that because that, that's what I, in our previous discussion, I, I wanted to talk more about irony. So I feel like that's an un, untapped vein that we could talk a little bit more about. And I do want to, but, and maybe this is getting old for people listening and for you too as well. The, there's one more point to be made about the shell poem. And here, Becky, at the very, very end of this document, I think this is the sentence that had tattooed itself into my mind. Zabigny of Herbert's poems do not say what they don't need to. So if you look at the shell poem, uh, one of the reasons maybe why these prose poems are often so short is because he's, he's a kind of genius minimalist. And he says, only enough, and then shuts up. He tells you the situation, the setting, the scene, in the mirror in my parents' bedroom, there was a pink shell. I walked up to it very carefully on tiptoe. And then there's one sentence of what would you call it? Exposition, reflection, meditation, editorializing. There's one sentence only that tells you what this image, quote unquote, means. Though I was little, I knew that even if you love someone very much, it sometimes happens that you forget all about it. End of poem. So don't you too feel that as readers, you're left in this wonderful position of I feel like this is an invitation. Like this is maybe what you mean, Alex, when you say like he he knows his readers. He knows that his readers are smart and don't need to be spoon-fed the moral. And all he has to do is kind of raise the idea or raise the question. And you and I can kind of complete the thought or fill in the blank like we have been doing about this poem. Oh, yeah, it's, it's okay to not remember your spouse every single second of the day. But he doesn't say, he doesn't continue the poem and say, by which I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he he only says enough. He's like a master minimalist. Uh, I felt like he was very good at that. And also in some poems, he does give more of what's needed though. I, I wish I had a better example, but I think I put a little bit in, in um, attempted a description. Sometimes there are things that need more description and more images. And other times they're, they just don't. Attempted a description doesn't need him to create all these certain images. I hope I'm getting this right, but anyway, I don't mean to move on to another poem. But no, let's, let's, yeah. All right, should we look at that one, maybe? Yeah, let's. It's on page 192. But I was struck a little bit with this one that, you know, he says really simple things for quite a bit of this poem with not a lot of striking images. Uh-huh. And I and I questioned that a little bit, and that's when I started to write in the document, just kind of, why is he not, you know? And I didn't want them either, and I don't know why I was asking, but I thought, yeah, he doesn't need to do that until a certain point, or until he's trying to say something important, or or maybe not at all, you know? Maybe, but I feel like he doesn't get to some really great images until the, actually the very last stanza. So, do you want to read it? Yeah. Attempt at a description. First, I will describe myself starting with from my head or better from my foot or from my hand, from the little finger of my left hand. My little finger is warm, curved slightly inward, ending in a nail. It is made of three segments, grows straight from my palm, 
If it were on its own, it would make a sizable worm. It is a peculiar finger, a left hand's little finger unique in the whole world given to me directly. Other little fingers of a left hand are a cold abstraction with mine. We have a common date of birth, date of death, a common loneliness. Only blood, busy with scansion of dark tautologies, binds together distant shores with a thread of mutual agreement. <laughs> wow, what a poem. This is one of my favorites too. Yeah. And yeah, I'm... So my ver this is a great observation, Becky, that the beginning, I mean, the beginning four-fifths of the poem are, no, let me rephrase that. The beginning four-fifths of the poem should be boring. Shouldn't they? They're not. I think they should. Just but why aren't they? Stanza. Why aren't they boring? But they're not. Yeah, you're right. They're not. Well, he says things differently, too. He's not just saying, look at my hand, look at my foot, but the way that he describes them. Yeah, like for example, my little finger is warm, curved slightly inward, ending in a nail. I mean, why is that poetry? I would never think to say ending in a nail. That's so, so good. So it's poetry because it, it defies our expectations? Is this what you would answer? Because you would never think to say it. So, And here he is suddenly saying it. It, it surprises me in a way that's satisfying. And I think he could have chosen some way of saying it that still surprised me, but it wasn't enjoyable. But he chooses something that is so simple. Yeah. I think part of this, the simplicity of that phrase is what makes it so unexpected and so enjoyable. Right. And, and he never gets past the little finger. I mean, he says he's going to, and I love that so much. Like, like a child who's, well, let me tell you about my whole body, but he gets caught up on the little finger. You know, yeah. I just love that about this poem too. So, yeah, it's not that we would ever know, but you know, in movies, apparently, uh, I don't know who at BYU was listening to this, but you know, if you get high, um, you can be, it can revert you to that childlike state again, and you, you know, you see people like looking at their hands as if they have just discovered that they have one. And it, it's a kind of, I think you guys are both right. It's, it's surprising on multiple levels. It's surprising that he is surprised by the subject matter. And there is, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to just simply restate points that you have already made and to restate them worse, but there is something wonderfully charming and more important than charming, wonderfully holy. I just kind of jumped eight levels about this childlike view of the world. Like this is worth staring at for a long time, you know, a long time. And as grownups, we forget that. And there's also something surprising about the simplicity. This was Alex's point. Like it is made of three segments. That sounds like something you would write in a fourth grade biology report. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it is made of three segments. So we're surprised by the content. We're surprised by his attention. We're surprised by the simplicity of the language. It goes to show that as a poet, there are many, many, many ways to surprise, and some of those ways contradict each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you, I, I'm, I'm thinking now, I don't know, but one of my favorite poems is this I would like to describe. What? And I think it's related. Can we read this one? Yeah. On page 65. So it's another poem in which it came to mind as, uh, in our discussion of... Um, 
Is that poem Anatomy of an Object? Is that what it was called? Because it's another poem in which he kind of, it's a meta poem in which he is meditating on his art and his, more than that, his way of looking at the world. So this is page 65. I would like to describe, I would like to describe the simplest emotion, joy or sadness, but not as others do, reaching for shafts of rain or sun. I would like to describe a light which is being born in me but I know it does not resemble any star, for it is not so bright, not so pure, and is uncertain. I would like to describe courage without dragging behind me a dusty lion, and also anxiety without shaking a glass full of water. To put it another way, I would give all metaphors in return for one word drawn out of my breast like a rib for one word contained within the boundaries of my skin, but apparently this is not possible. And just to say I love, I run around like mad, picking up handfuls of birds, and my tenderness, which after all is not made of water, asks the water for a face. And anger, different from fire, borrows from it a loquacious tongue. So is blurred, so is blurred in me, what white-haired gentlemen separated once and for all and said, this is the subject and this is the object. We fall asleep with one hand under our head and with the other in a mound of planets. Our feet abandon us and taste the earth with their tiny roots, which next morning we tear out painfully. I think this is in my top five of his of his poems. I mean, it it has this wonderful swerve at the end. I mean, how do we get to where the poem ends with mm-hmm. one hand in the stars and one under our heads and these our feet growing into the ground, sprouting roots? But I I, I love the beginning too, the whole setup where, yeah, he's very self aware. He knows that his aesthetic, or at least the aesthetic that he aspires to, is one. And we talked about this a little bit the last time is one of kind of, he, he aspires to a kind of transparency that he knows is impossible. And in a way, it's a strange thing for a poet to lament, but he kind of laments language getting in the way. <laughs> like if only I could take this, what's, I'm, I'm, people who are listening can't see this, but I'm pointing at my chest. If only I could take this and just give it to you without saying lions or birds or fire or, you know, because all of that, I love this. And so it's blurred. Language blurs things. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything else to say that other than I, I love I love the kind of like ambivalence he has towards his own medium. You know, poets okay. should be, that, maybe that's, we could add that to the box of the ways in which he surprises us. We would expect him to be like, oh, language is the best. I'm a poet. Language is the best. But language is also kind of the worst. <laughs> yeah. You know? He makes fun of it so well. Yeah. Yeah. This, I love this, uh, dust dragging a dusty lion behind me. Like, is it possible to write a poem about courage in which I don't use some cliche metaphor? You know, it's very hard. It's very hard to do. Can we, I'm, and, and if you guys don't want to, let's not, but I'm, it sounds like maybe at least Alex might want to a little bit because you mentioned satire, Alex. Absolutely. He's a master of satire, irony, humor, dark humor. I mean, many different words to describe what he's good at here. Can I read something to you guys actually? And this is, this is a topic on which I, it's one of those topics that I myself feel unsettled about and try to ask as many smart people about as I can, because 
I'll, I'll try to do this in a way that doesn't hog the mic. So let me try to be brief here. And then I want to get your guys' responses to this. So the German poet uh, Rilke, who we'll be reading in a few weeks, he wrote this book, uh, this very wonderful book that everybody should read called Letters to a Young Poet. It's, it's a wonderful book and he gives lots of great advice. And this is what he says about irony. It's a kind of paragraph long quote. So he's, he's, he's corresponding with a young poet and the topic of irony in poetry comes up. And he says this, do not let yourself be governed by it, especially not in uncreative moments. In creative moments, try to make use of it as one would, sorry, as one more means of grasping life. Cleanly used, irony too is clean and one need not be ashamed of it. And if you feel you are getting too familiar with it, if you fear this growing intimacy with it, then turn to great and serious objects before which irony becomes small and helpless. Seek the depths of things. Thither, irony never descends. And this, this rings true for me because I think that the greatest poems, I mean, I, I'm as silly as the next person. I mean, you should see me at home. I mean, I, I, I can't, you know, stop making faces. So it's not, I'm, I'm not anti-humor, but I do think that poetry and maybe art in general has a responsibility to tackle things that matter. And this Rilke's phrase is to seek the depths of things. And I think especially our moment in the 21st century, we are very afraid of wearing our heart on our sleeves, to use a cliche. We're very afraid of saying what we mean because it's easy. If you write a poem about courage, people will make fun of you. Do you know what I mean? Because you're writing a poem about courage and isn't that cute? You're a poet and you write about courage. So a defense mechanism that has kind of spread like a virus is to write poems in a kind of postmodern-y, sardonic, irony way in which nothing is being taken very seriously. This is all a joke, you know? I think that's, that should be fought against. We need to take things more seriously. I'm wrapping up, I promise. This is the question. Along comes Zbigniew Herbert, who can't stop joking. You know, he can't stop joking. So my question is, how do you write poetry? And his poetry takes things totally seriously, doesn't it? I mean, he seeks the depths of things. He's looking hard truths in the face, but he can't help being this kind of like class clown, right? I mean, I, I'm not wrong about that, right? He's, he, lots of his poems are very silly. And the one I just read has a lot of humor to it. So how can you employ irony or satire or comedy or humor in a way that also takes things seriously and in a way that also seeks the depths, the, the depths of things? Do you two have any thoughts about this? I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> oh, let's hear them. I think that one of the ways that he does that effectively is because he he chooses the serious topics to joke about. So he jokes about the mundane things as well, but he you you find poems where he jokes about his mother's funeral or mm. um and and he's joking about he, he I think the way that he does it calls attention to the seriousness of the topic rather than taking away from it. And it, it's almost like to, to bring pop culture, contemporary pop, pop culture into this, uh-huh. like a meme that, that everybody laughs at because we all know, oh, we should take that more seriously. Okay, right, yeah. It's drawing attention to the problems in our society. And I think that Herbert does that so well. He, he like, he'll joke about, things that that remind me of the cold war yeah. or i'll joke about 
executions. Yeah, that's right. And he draws attention to the fact that we shouldn't, we should take this more seriously. I love that answer. And the meme connection had never would have occurred to me, but I think you're absolutely right. It's a way he's already um, meeting Rilke's standard of seeking out the depths of things because of his subject matter, like dictatorships or tyranny or suffering, yeah. or even that poem that uh, I saw listed in your notes. Uh, it comes to mind, maybe this isn't the perfect example and we don't have to read it all, but Mr. Cogito thinks about blood. You know, there's a kind of comedic way in which he thinks about a bleeding person or a dying person, right? So he, he'll he'll say like, well, this is a serious thing, so I have to write a poem about it. But if I take it too seriously, then maybe the poem will be too heavy or too depressing or too, I will seem too self-aggrandizing. So let's play with it. You know, and I think the meme thing, yeah, we do that a lot. And that's a great example. Or the effect is actually greater because of that mm-hmm. humor and the... I, yeah, I, say more about that. I don't know if I have good examples, but um, it just sort of popped in my head. But just the fact that he does use just being silly or, you know, just saying funny things does make you think about it more, I guess, or right. makes you like, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about executions that happened during World War Two, you know, and and just to frame it within some kind of dark humor yeah, connects me with it. And I don't even know if I understand in what way, but I think it kind of goes back to what Alex was saying that, that it does more for the poem than, yeah. than it would otherwise, but I don't know exactly what the, you know, why. Well, that, it could be a psychological question that none of us are, I mean, me, I'll speak for myself only qualified to answer, but there is, I mean, it's like that that line Byron, the poet Byron writes, um, and if I laugh, it is so that I may not weep or something like this. Like there are topics that are too horrible to think about. And so the only way to approach them, but we have to approach them because they're too horrible to think about. The only way to pro- approach them is to make a joke. Like Jojo's Rabbit, so, if you saw that movie. Like, oh, I haven't, but I really want to. But oh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I know about that movie and I bet it's a great example of this. It really is, yeah. Like YTD is also an expert at this kind of satire yeah so be like we can't ignore this topic and more people will come and learn about it if we laugh than they will it, it might put people off if we take it if, if there's no ironic twist or comedic element involved i think it pulls it pulls the humanity out of us because we we read this poem that's serious and we know that it should be serious and that yeah. it shouldn't be funny. And there's something in us that because we know that, we're almost a little bit offended by it, but not enough to, to react in an offended way. But it more like it, it draws the, the awareness of morality out of us almost. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so that it's forced to the front, whereas normally it would just be at the back of our mind. And he forces us to look at it by making something funny that shouldn't be. One of my friends says something whenever I am able to joke with her about serious topics in my life. She always reminds me that this is a good sign because it means that I'm detached enough from the topic to to process and joke about it and see it from a distance. That's a great example. Okay. So uh, advice to all of us aspiring writers is 
if you love this mode of irony, if you feel like in your bone, and not everybody does, so not everybody feels like they're the class clown mm-hmm. or the jokester, but if you feel like this is an inherent part of you and you want to write lasting poems, you can have it both ways. You can write lasting poems. If you choose topics that matter, you can also treat them in this comedic way and they will matter. Yeah, but it, I think maybe topic selection becomes especially important. What else we want to talk about? We've talked about irony. We've talked about minimalism and him not saying more than he has to. We've talked about language. Can I share another poem? Please, yes. I love tongue on okay. page 210. 210. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Me too. Is this the one with the Japanese fish? Yes. Oh, I love that one too. I read, okay. I read the first couple of lines to my husband while he was working on something else. He was like, that's disgusting. <laughs> who, wants, who wants to read it? You want to read it, Michael? You, do, should yeah, I? Uh, here we go. Tongue. Inadvertently, I passed the border of her teeth and swallowed her agile tongue. It lives inside me now like a Japanese fish. It brushes against my heart and my diaphragm as if against the walls of an aquarium. It stirs silt from the bottom. She whom I deprived of a voice stares at me with big eyes and waits for a word. Yet I do not know which tongue to use when speaking to her, the stolen one or the one which melts in my mouth from an excess of heavy goodness. (laughs) So, okay, enthuse somebody. Um, I love this poem. It just caught me so off guard when I read it. Just the the imagery is so satisfyingly disgusting. Yeah, and I love it. It's and it's such a bold move to just write about this tongue that's alive inside <laughs> Ursula's belly. <laughs> and then also, I just I read the first paragraph. And I was like, this is an odd topic. And then the next one, I realized it was about the Little Mermaid. And I was like, what? You can write about this? I had no idea that you could write a poem about this. Oh, that had (laughs) never occurred to me. I actually didn't get that either, but you're right. (laughs) I loved the Little Mermaid so much as a little girl. And so I think this poem had the same effect on me as the Winnie the Pooh poem by Sid for Danny, my husband. We'll say more about that. And what effect is that? It makes a, a topic that you have nostalgia about new and completely writes about it in an unnostalgic way that's that's kind of strange and unusual. And it's just so fun to like re-see something that's familiar yeah. and loved by you yeah. as something gross in this case. Yeah. I have a question about this poem. If I was writing this poem, so there's a kind of surreal element about this poem, right? I mean, this isn't literally happening. It's a kind of imagined surreal mm-hmm. dream-esque type situation. I can imagine myself maybe in one of my more daring and fanciful moments coming up with this as a scenario for a poem. I could maybe get halfway down. It stirs in the bottom. I don't know if I'm quite that good of a poet because it's very good. It stirs silt from the bottom of my belly, you know presses against my diaphragm. That's all very, very good. But I still could imagine myself getting there. I think something like that, like that would still be within my grasp. I would feel though, and here's, here's where maybe I'm, I'm maybe getting annoyingly teacher-ish. How do you get out of a poem like that? So um, imagine you've, you've painted yourself into this corner. I've, 
I've begun a poem in which I imagine swallowing a tongue and it's in there like a fish. How do I end this poem? Right? So you can answer this question in several ways. You can pretend that you don't know the end of this poem and imagine your way like, well, there's that strategy. You could do this. You could do that. You could talk about things to avoid. Maybe that would be cliche and how you know they would be cliche, right? Or you can look at his ending and think, oh, maybe how he got here is maybe, I don't know. Does this make sense? I think so. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if, like Alex said, if there was that intent to make it the Little Mermaid and the sea witch stilling her voice, or if it was just something that happened. I don't know, because I hadn't even made that Yeah, I hadn't either. And he's not Uh, usually afraid of admitting when he's riffing on a myth or a a fairy tale. But it makes sense now that I look at it. But um, I think for me, the fact that he doesn't make it super obvious actually makes the surprise so much more effective for me as a reader because I read the first paragraph, like I said, and then I read the next one and I was like, what? (laughs) And it just, it made me super excited because I I had no idea what it was up until that point. Uh huh. So again, it could be another example of him knowing when he said enough. Uh huh. Yes. That could be another. Well, maybe to contrast this, since it's just on the opposite page, let's read this tiny poem called Clock. Okay. Because I feel like he's doing. It's a different. It's a little bit different of a move. So I'll just read it and then I'll say what I mean. <clears throat> Clock. At first glance, it's the placid face of a miller full and shiny as an apple. Only one dark hair creeps across it. And if you look inside a nest of worms, the bowels of an anthill, and this is what's supposed to usher usher us into eternity. I mean, this is a great poem. We talked about this in our last chat about his way of defamiliarizing common objects, and he'll see them in a way that would be like an alien looking at the world for the first time. I love this one hair creeps. So it's like round like a face and it has one hair that creeps across it. And inside it looks like, yeah, a bunch of worms all interlocked together, right? So pretend you've never seen a clock before and describe it is a good writing prompt. Pretend you've never seen a car before and describe it or a telephone or a shoe, you know? That's a good writing prompt. But here I I feel like, and maybe this is a dead end and we should move on to something else, but... When I read tongue, I get a sense of a tremendous mystery. I'm in some kind of mystery land. And I, my sense is that not even the poet knows exactly what he's talking about. Does this make sense to either of you? Like, I'm just going to dream this dream. It's a daydream. And I'll yeah. swallow this tongue. And yet I'll, pretend, I'll imagine what it would feel like. And the consequences of that would be that she doesn't have a voice. But there's no clear argument. There's no punchline. There's no and therefore explicitly in the poem. Whereas in contrast, the clock poem, he says, this is a poem about how this pathetic thing, time, dares govern us, you know, how dare the stupid thing. So he's making a clearer rhetorical argument in the clock poem than he is in the tongue poem. I don't know what point I'm trying to make other than poems can do a million things. They can make clear rhetorical arguments or they can simply evoke this kind of mysterious other world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I love that they can be so, I I think one of the reasons that I love poetry over, say, the short story, which I also love, is that it is so versatile. Yeah. The medium. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, we can gloat a little bit about this, like, um, poetry is better, right? It's just better. Uh, And one of the reasons is because it can do more things. Short stories can do a lot of things, too. 
But notice that when short stories get experimental, they get closer to poetry and mm-hmm. flash fiction and prose poetry are kind of the same, you know, same genre. So it kind of steals, kind of encroaches on our turf, right? Poetry can do a million and one things. That's absolutely right. Are there any other points that you guys want to hit or, well, yeah, maybe let me ask this and maybe this is a good transition question into um, my question for Becky, but how do you, it's, it's my contention um, as a teacher of poetry that really the only way, certainly the best way to learn how to write poetry is to read a lot of poems and to model your drafts on poems that you like. That's how I think poets have always learned how to do it by modeling their work on poets that they admire. So if you both admire Miwa, uh, not Miwash, Zbigniew so Herbert, what do you predict or what have you already noticed? Technically speaking, we can get crafty here. We can talk about enjambment. We can talk about white space. We can talk about syntax. We can talk about images, right? We can talk about sounds. What do you predict might change about your work or what have you already noticed is changing about your work uh, now that you've immersed yourself in Zbigniew Herbert? I, I think for me... I was experimented a little in my poetry with just pushing the boundaries of reality. Uh-huh. And I loved doing that, but I didn't ever know, like, I didn't ever think I did it very well. You know, I okay. wrote a poem about kind of flying in the air and I just, I didn't know how to do it exactly. And, and I don't know that he's like, there's a, a one way, but I feel like he does it so well. And I, and I need more time to like, look at what he's doing to, to really be able to model it. But I, I love that, like the To the Bones poem where, you know, his skeleton climbs out of his body. I just (laughs) love that poem just because I think, yeah, like nothing's impossible. And that was one of the things that struck me about Herbert is nothing, nothing is impossible in his poems and, but he does it so well. And I, and I, I don't really have answers as to what techniques he uses, or I just know that he, you know, he loves bees and he loves to, you know, climb inside of things. I love that he climbs inside the body in so many of these poems. I just think it's so cool. Something that we, you know, we don't think, oh, I want to climb in someone's body, but then you read the poem and you think, I do, I want to do that. You know, I want to scrape the edges of ribs or whatever he talks about. As gross as that may sound, he does it in such a beautiful way that makes the body so real. And yeah. I don't know if I'm even saying it right, but no, I, I think you're right. That really connected for me was just this impossibility becoming, oh, in writing, I can do this and I, and he does it well. So how okay. does he do that? I need to find out, but. Okay. Well, let's, I mean, amen to what you say about the body. I mean, it, it reminds me of that Kajito poem. I think it's called Mr. Kajito walks through the world. And he's like, one of my legs is slightly longer than the other. So I'm That's, constantly doing this like yeah. weird limping circle. So he's very, yeah, he's kind of obsessed with bodies and embodiment, I guess you could say. He's kind of obsessed with embodiment. But just in two minutes, Becky and Alex, maybe let's take this idea and like, let's let's draft a poem together. I mean, I, I kind of not, I, we can't really out loud, but let's ask ourselves this question. You, 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 you say you wrote this poem about flying in the air. Let's, let's out loud draft a kind of how would Zbigniew Herbert write a poem about flying, right? What would he, how would he start? What would the middle of his poem look like? How would his flying poem end? What would he do? He might start like how he starts in both tongue and clock of just like setting up the beginning with here's the scenario. 
And then yeah. it makes you fall off a cliff sometimes, maybe not right away, but here we are, we're looking at a clock and then suddenly we're swimming in worms. You know, he so might do something like that. I think totally. He would start by simply announcing it as a, as a fact, like a kid would, that's barely worth mentioning. Like, and then I was flying in the air. That would be the first sentence of his poem, you know, like he's taking it for granted. Right. And then I was, and then I started to fly. And, but then what would the poem do? You say it would, it would go off a cliff, but there must be some way to get from that opening bald statement, right? Not of nonchalant fact to the moment of the poem where he's like, you know, pulls the rug out from under you. How does he get there? I feel like somehow it would go out of control, out of his control, not the poem, but the flying. He would swallow a bird or something. Okay, <laughs> something bad would happen. <laughs> something something strange and and so that we would think typically would be bad but that he would describe in some beautiful way that 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 it was actually marvelous that 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 happened. Happened. <laughs> and it would be normal yeah it's reminding me of that book the little prince it, it would it would look have you guys read this book it would look a little bit like that like and then i was flying and then i kept flying and then i was on another planet and before it, like, yeah, or I, like, I started swallowing these birds and they helped me fly more and better, but then I was full of birds. And so something would seem good at first and then he would realize, oh, this is actually a terrible problem. Uh-huh. And the poem would end. How would the poem end? Oh, well. <laughs> it would end so well. Yeah, that's right. It would end on, it would end on something that, you know, I don't know if we could come up with now. It would end on the reader saying, wow. Okay, so Becky, um, yeah, my question is like, I think you raise a very good point here. So I want, I, mean, I want you to do the talking, not me, but just for some context, you write here that you read this book of poems quite quickly and you spent many days kind of immersed in his work in a way that you hadn't done maybe for other poets in the past. So you're kind of eating and drinking Zabigny of Herbert for a while now, and you feel like getting him into your blood this way has done something to you as a writer. Yeah. Um, and I wanted just, to hear more about that. Just yesterday, I, I went to the library to finish, um, so my kids weren't around, and because it was getting later in the day, and I, and as I was leaving, I thought, oh my goodness, like I have been thinking without knowing it all throughout this this book of how bad my poems are. Like, there's just so much in my poetry that just needs to be thrown in the garbage. And I, I guess I kind of knew that before, but, you know, I, I think I had a little more hope in it. But it wasn't a feeling of, like, despair. It was just a feeling of there's just such a better way, but I don't, I don't really have a clear answer. It's just that it felt good, and it felt like something's different. Yeah. Now. Which is really cool because I loved Miwosh. I thought he was a beautiful poet. And, I, and I'm and i sure I was thinking, you know, that I needed to change too, but much more so with this poem. And maybe it's the combination of the both. I don't know. But mm. uh, it was very cool to kind of sit down and, you know, encapsulate it like how he says, I love that, contract the world into a chestnut. That's sort of the moment I had yesterday. It was just like, oh, you know, I kind of have this takeaway that doesn't make a lot of sense, but it is something that's going to make me better. I hope. This is great. I, I mean, I have had this experience so many times where you discover a new poet who's really good. And suddenly you realize that the house 
the house, quote unquote house that you've been living in was very small. <laughs> and suddenly a wall has fallen down in this house or like you discovered a secret door, you know, in the house and you open the secret door and behind the secret door is a, another part of the house that's three or four times bigger than the, the the house you thought you were living in. Suddenly there's this whole new way. There's a, there's, there's this whole ginormous menu of types of poems that you didn't know that existed. You yeah, know what I mean? So we're supposed to have our own style, right? In a way, but there's so much. Well, I think you, this is, this is a great point to end on. And Alex, I'd love to get you in your thoughts in this as well, but yeah, you are, Becky, I guess, supposed to have your own style, but I think that that style is the only way to cultivate that style. That style will happen automatically. This is my firm belief that you, you already have it. I'm like, I mean this kind of genetically, like there's no other Becky in the world, right? There's only you, and therefore you are already unique. And so you don't have to go out and find a style. All you have to do is find the catalysts that are out there in the world that will that will teach you how to speak in a way that's truer to who you already are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that will come through lots of writing and lots of reading. And I think the role of a poet, like you're describing when you suddenly realize like, oh, so much of my work has to change is because they revealed that in the mansion of Becky, there are rooms that you didn't know you had. And some of these rooms look like Zbigniew of Herbert, right? So he can kind of teach you I'm now mixing metaphors to flex some muscles that you didn't know were underdeveloped, right? So if you read him and then you go read another poet and you read him and her and her and him, eventually Becky will have self-actualized, you know what I mean? And become full Becky, full poet Becky. And, but I think you do need to go out into the world and find these catalysts. And it's not that we don't analyze that. You know what I mean? Like it's that we read and read and read and write and write, and we don't have to pinpoint exactly when. I don't have to analyze, I'm getting better in this specific way because of Herbert. You know what I mean? It's, Sorry, it, I, no, I because it, it maybe can't be analyzed. Like who knows exactly all the ways that Herbert will change you as a writer. Some of them you could name and some of them might be diffusive, incalculable. It's, it's a magic kind of potion. It can't be, I don't know. Alex, what are your All right, thoughts? Alex, yeah, we haven't heard from you. I don't know. I've, I've experienced the same thing before, and I, I feel like I experienced it again with Herbert as well. So I, I agree with everything you're saying. I don't know if there's much that I have to add to it other than that I want to seek out as many of those experiences as I yeah. can continuing forward. And I... I was actually talking to Danny about this and I'm sorry, Michael, if this embarrasses you, but we were talking about how your teaching style is genius because. Oh, well, of course it is. Yes, of course. That does <laughs> you, you ask us to read so much. And I, I think that the more poetry that you read, the better, the better that you become at writing it. And that's just something that I really appreciate is, is being exposed to so much good poetry. Mm whenever I take your classes. Oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, thank you for the compliment, but I'm only doing, I'm only assigning things that have helped me. Like I, we're, we're wrapping up. Maybe this is, we'll it's cut great. this a little bit, but it's like, I only know one way to be, to write poems. It's the way that I've managed to stumble into doing it. And I learned that way by reading a lot. So that's why I assign, that's why, yeah, I do it the way I do. But 
yeah, it does kind of like you, you've all felt this, like you writer's block, I think is more like reader's block. <laughs> and as soon as you start reading again, then the valves get lubricated and you're like, Oh, the, the machine can work again, you know? So here I go, here I go. Pe- message to everyone listening. If you experience writer's block, read, read a lot. Yes. I, I actually have a thought about that. It's and just that whenever I find that I'm getting stumped on something that I'm trying to write or a poem or an essay, or I'll go pick up a book and see if I can get some sort of inspiration. And that's been the most helpful thing for me whenever I get stumped. Mm-hmm. So I totally agree with you. Good. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Me this too. is good. So um, thank you both very much. This has been a very wonderful chat. I learned a lot. And I really enjoyed it. Thank you. But this has been great. Yeah. Bye. It was fun. So today's writing prompt is inspired by Zbigniew Herbert's frequent use of historical or mythological characters. As we heard in the quote that started this recording, Herbert sees history as something that can inspire universal compassion and a responsibility not a responsibility to change the world in any dramatic sense or to preach moral lessons to his readers, but a responsibility for the state of his own conscience, a responsibility to make sure that he is noticing the motes and beams in his own eyes and his own soul. I also think it is a way for him to comment on the evils and catastrophes of history while looking at it from a perspective that gives him some distance and can transform a very personal or overwhelming life experience or circumstance into something that he can stand back from and feel like he's not actually engulfed in, and thereby he can retain a little bit of his sanity, I suppose. Just to give you a little example of his use of history and historical figures in in a poem, I'll read his poem to Marcus Aurelius. It's relatively short. This is to Marcus Aurelius. Good night, Marcus. Put out the light and shut the book. For overhead is raised a gold alarm of stars. Heaven is talking some foreign tongue. This the barbarian cry of fear. Your Latin cannot understand. Terror, continuous dark terror, against the fragile human land, begins to beat. It's winning. Hear its roar. The unrelenting stream of elements will drown your prose until the world's four walls go down. As for us... To tremble in the air, blow in the ashes, stir the ether, gnaw our fingers, seek vain words, drag off the fallen shades behind us. Well, Marcus, better hang up your peace. Give me your hand across the dark. Let it tremble when the blind world beats on senses five like a failing lyre. Traitors, universe and astronomy, reckoning of stars, wisdom of grass, and your greatness— too immense, and Marcus, my defenseless tears. What I find so powerful about this is his view of writing poetry as a way to reach out to the dead and to raise them from their coffins, as Whitman says in the preface to Leaves of Grass, that a great poet raises the dead from their coffins and stands stands them before him and says, rise and speak. Uh, there's no such thing as the dead or the past in, in the sense that they're gone forever. That's what I. That's the sense I get when I read the poems of Zbigniew Herbert. So this is a writing prompt in which I will invite you to just. It might take some time. That you might not be able to complete this right away. Think of a historical figure or a mythological figure that you connect with in some way, 
and I want you to begin a free write in which you directly address them in a way that is urgent and a way that treats them as a living, breathing person. So this could be a historical figure that made certain mistakes or committed certain errors or has certain flaws that you see in yourself. It doesn't have to be, and maybe I would encourage it not to be, a person who you admire wholeheartedly. And I want you to reach out to this person in a free write and just try to commune to them. Imagine that you were sitting in a room with them. Imagine you only had five or ten minutes to say something to them, something that mattered, something that was important, something that you cared about. What questions would you ask them? What would you want them to know? Is there a way that you can help bridge the gap of time and space and remind your readers of universal human compassion, that the dead are in a sense not dead, and we can be as intimate with them as we can with the living in some ways? And to conclude, today's poem of the day is not by Zbigniew Herbert, but following on the theme of immersing yourself in history and aiming for this kind of universal compassion, this poem does look at the past and the future in a kind of trans-historical way and highlights certain timeless and eternal truths about the human condition. It's by Thomas Hardy, and it's called In Time of the Breaking of Nations. Only a man harrowing clods in a slow, silent walk with an old horse that stumbles and nods, half asleep as they stalk. Only thin smoke without flame from the heaps of couch grass. Yet this will go onward the same, though dynasties pass. Yonder a maid and her white come whispering by. War's annals will cloud into night ere their story die. I hope you enjoyed that second part of our celebration of the poetry of Zbigniew Herbert. The next recording will be between me and one of you about the poetry of W.B. Yeats, and I'm really looking forward to that. In the meantime, keep writing, keep reading, and in the meantime, don't forget that you have what it takes to become a great writer. <laughs>